Lord, we dare not gather around our own word. We dare not come together this morning surrounding our own authority. Lord, I dare not preach and gather people to hear the word of Jeremy, the opinion of Jeremy. Lord, we gather around your word. We gather around your authority. We gather under to hear from your spirit through your word. And we pray this morning that you would bring a double-edged sword of, of pain, of conviction, and uh, conviction of sin and a recognition of the need to repent, and also healing. Lord, a cutting and a healing as you point us to Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you'd center our hearts and minds on true authority as we look into your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. G.K. Chesterton, a man who was well known for being able to communicate the fine point of an argument by way of his wit, wrote this in a really important book called Orthodoxy, which you should all read, by the way. He says, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. His point in saying this, especially as it relates to Revelation, is the degree to which literature, and for him especially the poets, tend to be misunderstood. Okay, They're torn to tatters, and they're torn to tatters by those specifically who don't understand the genre that they're reading. They're almost made out to be madmen, but as Chesterton points out, look, it's really the critics that have gone mad. It's those who've come after who are failing to understand. And the reason that this is an important point is because of the number one question that I receive as a pastor about the book of Revelation. Okay, so for 15 years, there has been a common, repeated, and overwhelmingly top question that I've received. Okay, um, now granted... This is the first time I've ever preached through the book of Revelation from beginning to end before. So I'm likely to get all kinds of questions repeatedly that I've never received in my 15 years of pastoring. And you know, from within orthodoxy, there are a number of views that one can hold to related to Revelation and still be considered an orthodox Christian. There's not enough clarity within some of the details to see what John actually means. You know, smart, biblical thinking... Christians can disagree over some of these details and still absolutely call one another Christians and even fellowship together in the life of the local church. Your elder board that Dan just prayed for, we have differing views in some kind of foundational ways as it relates to the structure of this book of Revelation. And so we need to be careful, all of us as we preach through this, to, to hold many aspects of Revelation with an, with an open hand. Okay, to be willing to change our view if the text seems to be going a different direction than what our view was. But that's usually the very thing that prompts people to ask me the most common question that I receive as a pastor about this book, and it's this. So why does it matter? You know, if, if Christians can disagree about the details of Revelation, and you can be a Christian and still hold to a number of different positions in this book, 
And if it's so mysterious that approaching it with too much certainty, even related to the structure of the book itself, is foolish, then why study it? You know, what's the point? And there's a lot of different ways we could answer that question and that we will be answering that question as the series continues. Because I actually think that it's extremely useful in the Christian life to even study the details over which there's disagreement and to come to a conviction with an open hand related to what it says. I think there's value in that. But for our purposes, you know, the reason Chesterton is so helpful in answering the questions with the quote above is that there's a primary aim of the book that often gets overlooked by those who comment on it or who preach on it. And it's overlooked in particular. The primary purpose is overlooked for these details, in, in, in favor of these details over which there's not clarity. You know, unfortunately, it's commonplace, even in, the, in pulpits in the West with Revelation, to run totally roughshod over that primary purpose in order to make some of those open-handed details like the, the main the main thing, and as we looked at together last week, look, there's an immensely practical main point in this book. Unfortunately, it tends to be approached primarily as a prophecy chart about which many of us can disagree and do disagree and, and, and remain well within orthodoxy instead of primarily as a deeply practical book that urges Christians to remain faithful to the end during a time in the West where, trust me, we're going to increasingly be in need of a book that urges Christians to remain faithful to the end. And for those of you who have these kinds of questions in particular, you know, why does it matter? What, what purpose can there be in studying it if there's not a lot of clarity? You know, maybe you're a believer who has these questions as someone who's been frustrated being a part of churches where people just constantly debated non-essential doctrinal matters, you know. And so you're kind of frustrated by that and you're like, oh, why does this, why does this matter? Or maybe you're a skeptic of Christianity who's read through you're a skeptic of Christianity who, who you've read through Revelation or you've heard about Revelation because it is fascinating. I mean, it's a fascinating piece of literature. So if you're reading through that as a skeptic, on the one hand, you're saying, wow, this is really interesting, first century apocalyptic literature. And then on the other hand, you're saying, but what on earth could this possibly have to do with Christians in like a 21st century world, right? And for all of you who are wrestling with that, I want to be able to answer those questions week by week. Because here as we begin our section together, we see a picture of, of text this morning. We see a picture of why this really does matter. How it really does shape us as Christians. And we can see it this morning by focusing on this vision of this glorious and authoritative figure in Revelation 1, 9 through 20. As, as with all of the New Testament, but specifically with the Gospel of John... John's letters, so all of John's writings. The question becomes this. Regardless of what you think about God, you know, regardless of where you're at with Christianity and, and, and you know, your thoughts about Christianity, your thoughts about religion in general, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the person of Jesus, you know? Because here we have Jesus who claimed something about himself. Jesus, who was born into history, he lived, he died in a very specific kind of way. There was an empty tomb in that history. There are these resurrection appearances that we get to have a glimpse of one, this, one such resurrection appearance this morning. 
that his, all of his followers claim to have. What do you do? You know, to say that Jesus is a unique figure on the pages of history is a complete understatement. And specifically, you know, as you get into some of the really good commentaries here, one of the things that keeps coming back, specifically related to Jesus, regardless of your view of God, regardless of your view of, like, God's existence and his involvement in this world, is maybe we can back up and all agree that life always involves the recognition that you're not in control of things, that you're not in control. You know, like, there comes a point where you just need to let go of things. You need to, like, yield control. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to or not, we have to realize we're just not in control. Sometimes it's realizing I'm not in control of who lives and dies. Realizing I need to give up oftentimes friends and family who pass away into death and that's not in, in my control. Sometimes it's realizing I need to give up on the idea that I'm in control of my own health because of some diagnosis that takes that control out of my hands. Sometimes it's realizing that I need to give up my job or my occupation or the place that I live because of, once again, circumstances that are outside of my control. Church planting has been like this for me, personally. You know, you come into it and, you know, you come into it with all these ideas. You can ask Dan. He was my coach for church planting in the EFCA. I was a, I was just a naive puppy. You come into it with all these ideas of what church planting is going to look like in terms of your initial strategy and where you're going to be located and how you're going to grow and exactly what it's going to look like. But then you, you start to see that God's, uh, God's uh, plan is different. You come to see that there's something else happening there, right? And uh, unforeseen event after unforeseen event after unforeseen event, and you eventually just get to this point where it's like, all right. Right? There's just this yielding of control. And so all of us need to eventually, you know, learn this posture of just opening our hands. Regardless of even what you believe about God, right? You've got to learn the posture. Because... We have to say, we have to acknowledge, okay, this is outside of my control, it's outside of my authority, but the question is, if it's outside of your authority, you know, if you recognize that you're not in control, what do you think is exactly? Who is? If you're not, if you're not authority, what or who is your ultimate authority? What decides these things? Do you have one? You know, I think all of us have to, on some level, have some kind of functioning ultimate authority, even if it's just, at the end of the day, cold, hard, random probabilities, you know, chance, the odds, that those become our authority. I guess it's just going to happen the way it happens. But here we see what makes the Christian life and the vision of the Christian life given to us in the scriptures so different than the surrounding world, even in the first century, because it begins with the recognition that there's an authority greater than me. In fact, it necessitates it. You can't be a Christian without that kind of recognition. And here in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, we see this deeply practical difference from what the surrounding world clings to when things spiral out of their control, when they're facing some great evil. And what the Christian life holds out to you in the midst of the evil that you face. Like, this is a, this is a very real question for the first century Christians that John is authoring this book to, as we talked about last week and as we'll see even this morning. And so, what we come to see is, eventually, eventually you will give everything up. Eventually you'll give every earthly thing up. You'll have to. You'll surrender, you have to surrender everything. And we can either attempt in that journey and process to be our own authority, which then life becomes this constant fight to stay in control, but we lose it and lose it. You know, it's just a futile fight. And in the end, it's just a hopeless surrender to random chance. But what does it look like to place your life into the hands 
of one with actual control, and his control is powerful, and his control is glorious, and his control is ultimately for your good. Even when it's hard to believe. And for believers whose faiths are more and more challenged by the world around them, like pressing in on you, how does knowing and yielding to that kind of control by way of trust actually enable a life that's far less frantic about these things and simultaneously more equipped to stand in the face of persecution rather than falter in it? Like, how do we remain faithful rather than falter? At its base level, the way toward that, the way of that, John starts with. In chapter 1. Here in Revelation 1, 9 through 20, we have John seeing this vision of the Son of Man, and we can divide the vision, and here's our outline, into five parts that teach us something about his authority and why it matters. So in our text this morning, you'll see five parts of the text, five parts of this revelation that John receives. Five parts that will show you something about his authority and why it matters. Uh, Jesus' authority, why it matters. All right, first we see, number one, the context, if you're taking notes. And by the way, if you're taking notes, you can just pull out this nice little ESV scripture journal, Revelation to John. This can be a place where you put your notes. You know, you just take this little sleeve off, and inside, you've got this, the text on one side. This is a gift to you. It's out in the lobby. You can grab one. These nice, thick, cream-colored pages. I love this thing. Okay, so um, I really do like these. You should get one. But, okay, so first we see the context of the vision. Verses 9 and 10. John writes this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and uh, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. All right, so here we have John again, and, you know, just to reiterate, not seeing any evidence to, you know, upend the beliefs of the earliest Christians, upend the beliefs of the earliest church fathers in the tradition following that uh, this is John the disciple. I don't see any evidence to upend that. I I take this to mean John the disciple, and again, we have Q&A after the service. If you have questions about those kinds of things like authorship, it's a great place to do that. And here John gives us the context or the circumstances behind his writing. Why is he writing? And in answering that, John begins by describing himself, like who he is in the midst of this writing. He says, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So John begins by saying, look, I'm a fellow believer. I'm your brother, but but being a fellow believer with you makes me your partner. And it makes me your partner in three different realities. First, he says, he's their partner in tribulation. Tribulation. Persecution. We'll see the extent to which he faces persecution with them, but he wants them to know that he shares with them in the suffering that they now face. Like, John isn't, he's not like writing disconnected, sorry, it's not, he doesn't have a computer. He's not like writing disconnected from everybody, you know, and uh, sipping a latte thousands of miles away, kind of cheering them on from afar. John is participating with them. He's a partner with them in their suffering, and we'll see to the extent in which that's the case as the world slanders them, socially marginalizes them, forces them into poverty, imprisons them, physically abuses them, and even in many cases will kill them for their faith. But he's not just a partner in suffering or persecution. He's also a partner in the kingdom. 
We saw this last week, but you know, Revelation begins with this idea that at one point believers were a part of the kingdom of this world in which there was a tyrant over them enslaving them. And by the blood of Jesus, they've been freed from that. And God's brought them into this new kingdom. We'll talk more about what that means and what that looks like. And he's made them actually priests in this new kingdom, right? And this is where we kind of see an already not yet tension that we talked about together last week that we'll see throughout the book. They are already, even now, the recipients of this book in the first century A.D., members of the kingdom together. The kingdom has already been, in a sense, inaugurated because here you have members of it. John is one, and those who he writes to are also members. And yet, they will, in the future, reign with Jesus when he comes to, like, Fully complete, bring that kingdom to completion in the end. And so third, so he's a partner in tribulation and in the kingdom and also in patient endurance. They're called to endure presently in the midst of this kingdom that isn't quite consummated, isn't quite complete, right? They're called to endure presently so that they can receive and enjoy the fullness of the kingdom that's yet to come. And that patient endurance, so this is, this is the question, right? Like, so John, all right. How is it possible that you can be going through this kind of tribulation, this kind of persecution, and yet still have patient endurance? Like, on the one hand, it's endurance, so you're continuing on in your faith, but on the other hand, it's patient endurance. I think, I think for me pastorally, oftentimes I might have endurance in my faith, but it's not always patient. Here John says there's, there's this key to patient endurance. What is it? And, and the, 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 the readers of this scripture are meant to ask that question of John, and John does two things. He tells them, and then he shows them. He tells them what's at the center of this, and then he shows them what's at the center. He says first, tells them, patient endurance in the midst of this is possible because we're in Jesus. We share in his sufferings, we partake in his kingdom, And we endure with his patience that we might receive what is to come. So he tells us it's in Jesus, and then he's going to show us in just a little bit. But John, you know, he's put his money where his mouth is because he finds himself in exile on this island called Patmos, according to the text. It's a small island in the Aegean Sea, real small, real tiny. John tells us he's been exiled there. If you look in the text, he says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of of Jesus. In other words, he's been banished there because of preaching the gospel. And the Roman imperial cult of the day, the culture of the day, uh, has painted his gospel preaching as disruptive, as narrow-minded, dangerous. So now John finds himself in isolation for preaching the gospel. And uh, being in isolation, he also finds himself on the Lord's day. John's has this personal observance of what he calls the Lord's Day. What's the Lord's Day? Well, it's almost certainly a reference to Sunday. You know, in the vast majority of commentators, this is the opinion, uh, and for good reason. As we look at early Christian tradition in the scriptures, the gospel writers all uniformly and repeatedly mention that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. And specifically in the book of Acts, where believers break bread together, they get in the habit of breaking bread together on the first day of the week. And then we start to learn about how they talk about the Lord's table, the Lord's table, the Lord's table, which is almost certainly what was being described in Acts. 
They're doing this on the first day of the week. And so we see something of this new rhythm in which the church of God would gather on the Lord's day to worship, to hear the word, and to receive the Lord's table. So Gospel Life Church, when we come together on Sunday to do this, we're joining with 2,000 years of the church. And for good reason. But John finds himself unable to gather. It's the Lord's day. And he's unable to gather, not because he's forsaking the community, but because of exile. He can't. Because of persecution, he can't gather with other Christians on the Lord's day. But in his own personal observance, he finds himself in the Spirit. Now, I just need to say, in the Spirit, in this context, there's absolutely not a hint of the idea that this is somehow like some Pentecostal charismatic thing that all Christians should try to seek after, like getting these kinds of visions that John gets in chapter 1. Not only is that, there's no, there's no hint that that is the case, actually every, uh, every bit of evidence we have points us in the other direction, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Not, this is also not, like, you know, you see in the New Testament places like Jude. The author of Jude says we should pray in the Spirit. When Jude's talking about that, he's saying like, you should pray in line with the gospel. You should pray in line with the scriptures, right? So if, when, you, when you heard Dan Moose's uh, prayer for the elders, there was a lot of scripture that he was praying. And, and Pete's prayer, there's scripture that he's praying. When we institute new members at Gospel Life Church, there's scripture that we're praying. That's praying in line with, it's praying in the spirit. But in this case, in, in Revelation 1, it's not saying that John is, you know, praying in agreement in those ways. It's a reference to the way that God, it's actually pointing us back to the Old Testament. And it's a reference to the way that God would speak to and through Old Testament prophets. They would receive, in other words, a direct revelation from God. God speaking directly through a prophet to God's people, making that revelation known to him that he might make that revelation known to God's people. That's what's happening here in this text. And so how, how in this case is the revelation made known? Well, he hears a voice like a trumpet. And, and what's that a call to remember? It points us back to the trumpet that the Lord's people heard when he revealed himself on Mount Sinai to God's people in the Old Testament. That's the level of authority. That's the nature of revelation. It's God saying, here, here I am, disclosing himself more to his people through this direct revelation. So here's the context. That's the first part of this, just to get a sense of why is John writing, right? Even in apocalyptic literature, we are meant to imagine, right? So let's imagine John, the author, exiled on this very small Greek island, He's unable to gather and worship with God's people because of being banished and exiled on account of preaching the gospel. But in his own observance of the Lord's day, he finds himself being given direct revelation from God. And here we begin to see what that revelation is. We get to see what John is told. So we move from the context, first part of this vision, to now, secondly, the commission. The commission. Verse 11. So he heard a voice like a trumpet saying... Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So in this revelation, John's given a commission by this voice. He's commissioned, charged to do something. He's told to write down what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are then actually ordered in uh, the direction that you'd have to head travel 
if you were to drop this letter off at these different churches. So it's like the travel route is the order that we see in chapter 11. Now, for our purposes, we should just note at this point that writing down that revelation from God only adds to this concept of God's authority. Like, it, it's, it's additional fuel to the idea that this is not John's message, you guys. It's not from John. It's not his. Like, the churches shouldn't care what John thinks. You guys shouldn't gather with me on Sunday morning to hear Jeremy's opinions. That would be foolish. It would be nonsense. Please don't ever do that. They're, they're hearing this because it's from the Lord. We're reminded of places like Exodus 17 where God says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua. Recite it to the ears of people, of, of, of the people. Why? So they'll know that this isn't the word of Moses, right? That this comes directly from the Lord. It reminds you of Isaiah chapter 30. Where, where the Lord says, and now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's like, you know, when I, when I tell my kids, go, go downstairs, please, and tell them that they're being too loud. You know, it would tell one of the kids to go tell one of the other kids. That they're just, they're being too loud, that they need to quiet down. And oftentimes what will happen is, a child will go downstairs and they'll say, um, you know, something to them and they'll come back up and everybody's screaming. And I'll say, wait, did you say dad said that they're being too loud or did you just try to tell them to quiet down? And oftentimes it's like, well, I just told them to quiet down. Yeah, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to listen to my authority, right? And so there is this sense here too in which it's like, write this down so that it come, they know that this isn't from you because they're not going to listen to you. And you know what? They shouldn't. Why would they? And not only does writing this revelation down have this larger biblical sense of authority behind it, but in addition to writing it down, he's to send the revelation to the church to be read as God's revelation. Grace to you, he says. Same way that Paul talks about grace to you. Like, it bears the authority of God's word in the assembly. In the assembly, you know what they're supposed to do with it? They're supposed to read it in their assembly. Just like we're doing together this morning to read and explain this text because it's authority. It's authoritative. So we've seen the context of John receiving the revelation, the commission within this revelation to write it down. But now we see why this isn't a particular commission that John can just kind of like sidestep. This isn't really an option. It's not something that he can just kind of pass over for the same reason that I just talked about with my kids in the illustration. When that child then goes downstairs and said, Dad says to do this or you're going to be in some trouble. Well, now that carries some, okay, can't as easily sidestep it. He can't sidestep this, this revelation because now we see where it comes from. We see the commissioner, the commissioner number three. So the context, the commission, and now the commissioner, the one giving this commission. Verses 12 to 16, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, like, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Okay, so it began, this revelation, this like, experience of John being in the spirit began with him hearing this voice but now he turns to see the voice in other words he turns to see who's speaking to him 
the one giving the commission, the commissioner. And on turning, the first thing he sees are these seven golden lampstands. Now, it's pretty common within apocalyptic literature, like if you read things like the Book of Enoch, where, you know, the author will, will use a symbol, and then later on in the book, he'll tell us what that symbol is. It's exactly what we see in Revelation, and we're going to see it all over the place. And we see it right here, actually. Um, we'll see at the end of this chapter that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches. And the actual symbol of the lampstand itself is a reference back to the temple where the lampstand was in the holy place, just outside of the most holy place, reflecting light throughout the temple, reflecting in a symbolic way the holy of holies back to God's people. And in that symbolism, we're meant to see the mission of the church. As quite a few commentators point out, the local church is meant to reflect the light of the glory of God to the world around them. This is our mission. God gives us his authoritative revelation. God gives us his word. You guys, this is why we planted this church. Our calling is that, like that lampstand, is that we would adorn that that um, revelation, that we cherish it, that we proclaim it to the world around us. It's not something presented as just like true for Christians in some weird kind of way, or just authoritative for us, but not authoritative for the world. In fact, Revelation is going to make it very clear that this is pretty black and white. Revelation, as we talked about last week, is more black and white than most books. So you're either in or out. You're, you're, as we'll see, you either have the mark of God or you have the mark of Satan. You're one of God's people or you're Satan's, one, one of Satan's people. Like, this is how Revelation paints this moving forward. This is how, how Re- Revelation describes this. And we see this, so this mission of the church is to proclaim this authority for everyone, that all might hear, that all might see that they need to repent because there's judgment coming for those who don't hear and believe, and there's grace and mercy for those who throw themselves on the mercy of Christ. And so in the midst of those lampstands now, so he sees these lampstands. In the midst of them, he sees someone like a son of man. Um, the imagery of this son of man, just like with the lampstands. Okay, so it's hard to describe it like it's really important. Well, it's not meant for us to kind of crudely draw this picture, you know, like uh, to, to read this through and then like, okay, so here's his, you know, feet and here's his tongue and here's the, here's, you know, here's the, the long robe and the sash. It's not meant to put all these things together because in apocalyptic literature, and Carson's really helpful in pointing this out, but in this kind of literature, it's, there's, there's going to be moments in which he, the author mixes their metaphors. Why? Because there's, so there's going to be things that are like actually contradictory, that don't work together in the image. We'll, we'll see like ancient youthfulness. You know, it's, it's sort of like, um, like in the Old Testament where you see that Jesus is the lion and he's the lamb. And it's spoken of in the same sentence. And you're not supposed to like draw a picture of like this lion, lamb, mutant, you know. No, is this Jesus? No, like both images in their fullness are what's meant to be understood, right? Because it tells us more about Christ. And so here we see in this picture imagery that should be striking for us. And it, it comes to us as a reminder again and again of who's in charge, who holds the future, who holds the present, who holds all circumstances that we're in right now, who holds this commissioning, you know, who holds the context of this persecution, the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man. is It's an exact echo of the book of Daniel. We're going we're gonna to spend a little more time in Daniel moving forward, but in, for now just know that in Daniel chapter 7, 
In the Old Testament, Daniel also speaks in almost exact kinds of terms, using the exact language in a parallel kind of way of this Son of Man, in which we see this picture. Who's the Son of Man in Daniel? Well, we see this picture of someone who's a human, and yet he's more than a human, you know. It's pointing forward to this, this person who's to come in Daniel, who's both a human, and yet he comes on the clouds like Yahweh, and all will see him, according to Daniel. So obviously, like, more than a human. And we'll actually see in these verses imagery that throughout the Old Testament is meant to apply only to God, and here it's applied to the Son of Man. Who is he? Well, well, we'll see the identity made known again in chapter 14. But there can be no doubt to whom John is referring. This is a symbolic picture of the risen Christ. And, and we see this in the text. Um, and so Christ Jesus, the Son of Man, is walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, showing the readers that he dwells with the churches, that he's with the churches in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their persecution. And, you know, this had real implications for these first century churches that were battling this kind of persecution to know that this Son of Man that's about to be described is with them. But it also, you know, bears pointing out that while this is seven churches in the first century who are actually living in this time, who are... It's why we need to, like, on, on the first reading of Revelation, always read it in the historical backdrop. We have to, because these seven churches would have read these, this, this a certain way. Okay, while that's true, this number seven in apocalyptic literature and throughout Revelation also has the sense of completeness, the complete church. And so, this idea of the Son of Man wandering in the, uh, being in the midst of the lampstands is also very, very crucial for us, has real implications for us as a church. Jesus is vitally present with Gospel Life Church. Jesus knows our state. He knows our condition. He knows our challenges. He knows us and desires to grow us in His likeness and to use us to extend and expand His kingdom, not because He needs us, but because of His grace and mercy toward us. Real implications for us. And John says, so, so we might ask, well, how does He do that? Well, he says He's clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this long robe and golden sash, it's probably a reference primarily to priestly garments. So if you read through the Old Testament, these kind of garments, most of the time that you find them, these are priestly. But there's also, there's this kind of dress ascribes a certain sense of royalty kind of imagery as well. You know, in Daniel, we see that the coming son of man is seen as a king with a kingdom. He, he's, it's said that he receives this kingdom along with the saints and that he's their authority. He's their, you know, um, corporate head. He's their king. But here we see, I think, that it's not just royalty that the Son of Man possesses, but also a priesthood. And that actually the means of his royalty is this priesthood. He's a king and a priest. He functions as a priest in the ultimate sense because not only does he preside over the sacrifice that enables God's people to be in this kingdom, but he is the sacrifice that enables God's people to be in this kingdom. There is a current movement from within Christendom that likes to talk this way. They like to say, can we talk a little bit less about the cross and more about the kingdom? Isn't this more just all about the kingdom? Like, wow, what's with the focus on the cross? And yet in places like Revelation 1, to say nothing of the rest of the New Testament, the cross is vitally central to the kingship, as, as Schreiner puts it. Tom Schreiner, in his uh, commentary on Revelation, which uh, would be helpful to order and read, he says the kingdom becomes a reality through the cross. And thus, if, listen to this, if there is no cross, 
In other words, if there is no priestly work of atonement, there's no kingdom for the saints. You can't have this talk of this kingdom without the cross. Because that's the means by which we know Christ, as we'll continue to see together this morning. And so John in his description says, And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. In the book of Daniel, this phrase is used to point to the Ancient of Days. So the Son of Man in Daniel 7 approaches the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, the text says that his clothing is as white as snow, his hair... His hair, the hair on his head is like pure wool. And you know, here we see it's not accidental on John's part. He's not like confused. He's not like, oh wait, well, I think I got the story wrong. The son of man didn't have the, the white hair uh, with the white robe. It was actually the ancient of days. My bad. No, he's being clear here. He's attributing the characteristics of the ancient of days, the characteristics of, of God himself now to the risen Christ. Christ is God. Ancient Hebrew culture was a culture that honored, you know, age for its wisdom. And here we see something similar. You know, like if you were to visit ancient Hebrew culture with white hair, you'd be welcomed and received in a really unique kind of way. You'd be cared for in a unique kind of way. You'd be honored and respected. We have cultures like that today as well. And here we see something similar. The Son of Man is depicted as one with pure white hair, there's a, a wisdom type of symbolism happening here, an ancientness, and yet his eyes are a dazzling flame of fire. He contains the wisdom of the ancient of days, and yet, though ancient, appears with eyes that have not lost their piercing gaze, they have not lost their color. There's an ancient youthfulness, one who's aged in some sense in wisdom, not that his wisdom aged, but aged in wisdom, but not aged in power, like in a lack of power or ability. Uh, it says that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the nature of the power of this son of man. With feet like burnished bronze, we find one who can very easily crush his enemies under them. Even his voice is powerful, like the roar of many waters. And in his power he holds the seven stars in his right hand. What does that mean? Well... You know, by the end of the chapter, the author tells us that the seven stars are actually the seven angels of the seven churches. Oh, thanks, John, for clearing that up. Um, there's still a lot of questions as to what that refers to and means. There are a few possibilities, and we can talk about it more at the Q&A. But probably, I think, what's in view here is actual angelic beings that are assigned to watch over the church. And I think the symbolism behind that is, is this. Not only does God hold the churches in his hand, but he holds the angelic beings watching over the churches in his hand. He has this kind of authority, and his authority ex only extends on from there. Because out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword, which throughout the Old Testament is this symbol of the Word of God, which both cuts and heals with both of its edges. In this context, it really demonstrates judgment. As in chapter 19, you know, this Son of Man is going to come back to judge the nations, and the text tells us, a sword comes from his mouth, right? And his face shines like the sun, 
And not just the sun, but the sun and all of its brightness and all of its strength. Have you ever, you ever tried to stare at the sun? Maybe when you were a kid. Maybe when you were a kid. Yeah, Titus knows what I'm talking about. I've been there, Titus. Um, you think, you think you're, you're invincible. You think that you can just handle this. And so you look up and you don't know. You don't know yet. You don't know that like there, you're going to be seeing a giant yellow spot for the rest of the week. But, you know, you really want to see this thing and get, get some focus to look at this giant star. And so you stare at it. And what happens? Your eyes, your eyes water and you're blinded and maybe you get a headache. You know, it's, it's bad. Um, and this is just like kind of a weak picture of what it's like to stare upon the glory of God. The, the pagans in the first century would routinely tell Jews and Christians that they were actually probably atheists. They would laugh at Christians because they would tell the Christians and the Jewish people, they'd say, you can't ever show me your gods, you know? Show me your God. I can show you my God. Show me your God. Sure, you can, you can speak of your God as being active in history. You can tell me something about your God. But like, the pagans, they could actually fish in their pocket. And pull out their God and say, here's my God. Where's yours? You must, you're essentially atheists. You can't show me your God in the way that I can show you mine. Actually, there's a story t- told from, I think, around the second century uh, where there's this old Jewish man who's standing before the emperor Trajan. And uh, he's supposed to give an account for his teaching in the second century. And Trajan's just mocking him. He's just laying it on about how, like, why can't you show me your gods? You don't even believe in a god because you can't even show me this god that you're talking about. It's really nebulous. And after being mocked for a while, this Jewish man finally says, okay, all right, I'll show you my god if you can gaze and gaze and gaze on the face of one of his emissaries. And Trajan sits back on his throne and replies, great, finally, show me this emissary and I'll gaze and gaze and gaze upon him and then you can finally show me the face of your god. And the old Jewish man says, then gaze and gaze and gaze, sir, at the sun. His point, of course, is that the God of the Bible is so glorious that you can't simply like, contain him in your pocket the way that the pagans could. Right? Like, what, what the pagans understood is a strength of their faith. The Christians laughed at as a trifle. It's sort of like in the book of Genesis when Jacob steals the household gods of his father-in-law and, you know, there's kind of this theme that that the author of Genesis is getting back to again and again, where it's like, oh, pagan gods are so powerful that they can not only be seen and looked upon, but they can be stolen and hidden and sat on and buried and apparently you know, put in your pocket to take out and just show whoever wants to see this, and then just put it back in your pocket. And yet here you have the risen Christ in all glory, and his face is like the sun. He appeared in history, but... In his risen, resurrected body, he displays a kind of glory that's unequaled. Unequaled in majesty, unequaled in glory, unequaled in power. It's hard to even put the kind of glory that Jesus embodies into words. And so here, after seeing this glorious Christ... A picture of this glorious Christ. Now we see, so we go from the context, the commission, the commissioner, Jesus himself, to now, real quickly, the contrast. Fourthly, the contrast between him and John. What's John's response? What's his reaction? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, 
saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys to death and Hades. John just faints away as though dead. He crumples, you know. The, the picture here is actually one who faints like they just had a heart attack and a massive heart attack and just dot, died. It's, it's instantly falling down on an instant pile on the floor, and yet the Son of Man lays his right hand on him, and it's here that we see the contrast between this one who's so weak and powerless that he falls crumpled to the floor and the, the Son of Man who says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. I actually died. And behold, he says, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. In other words, while John falls away as though dead, Jesus tells them, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because I've conquered death. And that has something to be said for first century Christians who are actually said later on in the book to not love their lives even unto death. Do not fear. You can trust my authority. I've risen you into a new life, and the life that I give you can't be taken from you. And so the passage ends finally with this command, okay? So the context, the commission, the commissioner, the contrast, and now the command. This outline brought to you again by thesaurus.com. Verses 19 and 20. Write therefore the things that you have seen, and those that are those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so sometimes, and this is kind of to circle back on what we were talking about at the, at the introduction. Sometimes verse 19 is primarily seen as a structure to the book of Revelation. And it may be, I don't know. I don't think it is, but there are some who say, like, look, um, he's saying, to, telling John to write, it's like an interpretive key. Write the things that you've seen, that's chapter 1. Those that are, that's the churches, present, chapters 2 and 3. And then those that are yet to come, and that's 4 and onward. There are those like myself who say, so it's a letter written to these seven churches, and only the three, chap the three first chapters are concerning them. When, in fact, they would have heard all of them in a very specific kind of first century framework and with a first century backdrop. But regardless of how you see this, and there are different views, I think one thing that I, we should be able to agree on is that's not the primary purpose of verse 19, not in this context anyway. Here, in fact, it's not the interpretive grid or the framework or the structure that's important, but rather the command. There's an imperative that John is given by Jesus, and that takes preeminence. In other words, in light of the reality that this commission comes from none other than the risen Jesus, who stands there in all authority, John is now commanded to start writing. And of course, his unstated response is what? Yes, I will. Why? Because here you have one speaking who cannot be denied. Here you have one speaking, friends, who cannot be denied. And it's not that he can't be denied because he exerts some kind of enslaving force over his people, making them to do something, but because the very nature of his glory and who he is compels them to want to follow, compels them to hear his voice and obey. Here you have one speaking who cannot be denied. Will you deny him? Or will you in seeing the reality of who he is and what he's done, react with a kind of trust that enables you to stand in the midst of hardship. 
In other words, how will you this morning respond to Jesus Christ? Will you respond by faith in an authority that not only is greater than your own, but that made a way for you to know him? That though you fell away as though dead, you were crumpled to the floor in comparison, though you have, you're spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer this God on your own merits, this holy God on your own merits, though there's this deep contrast between people and God, this authority made a way for you to know him by his death. Taking the punishment that we deserved at the cross that we might have life with him, and this is the kind of life that nothing can rob you of. You have a present life in his kingdom. And yet, that kingdom will come and will be inaugurated into that kingdom even more. Will you trust him? Will you put your faith in him? You know, when we come to the table each week, what we're doing essentially is we're proclaiming the way we respond to Jesus to one another. We're proclaiming the gospel to one another and we're saying these things are all possible because we are in Jesus, because we're united to him, because ultimately all of these things flow from his hand. And so what I'd like to do now is to invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, this meal is for you. You can come forward and take.